Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Dealing with pests can be a pain, but relax. Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X dot com. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. They call me Ben. We're joined, as always, with our super producer, Paul, Mission Control Decades. Most importantly, you are you, you are here, and that makes this stuff they don't want you to know. We're diving back into the livestock industry. So uh, that's either <laughs> that's either a disclaimer to anyone eating right now, or it's an invitation to turn it up while you're cooking whatever you're cooking in your kitchen. Uh <laughs> In our previous episode, we explored the gargantuan, sometimes hidden economy behind meat in general. And we noted just how much influence the livestock industry has upon so many other industries. And, and Matt, you pointed out that transit is a, is a huge piece of this, you know, which a lot of people don't think about. Yeah, most definitely. The animals have to get there somehow a lot of times if, you know, depending on the facility. And then they, the product has to get other places as well. And, and sometimes it's across oceans, uh, which is crazy to think about. Right, right. The days of uh, cowboys herding cattle 
by foot and by hoof across the uh, American West are, are, are kind of long gone and romanticized. It's one of those things we always talk about, like how technology moves things forward and how refrigeration and just like ice is probably one of the most meaningful technologies, quote unquote, of our you know, species in, in many ways. It allows us to do so many things like ship meat without spoiling across oceans. And I like that ice example there, Noel, because uh, there, there's a wonderful parable, a real story about refrigeration and ice. And I think it can come into play in this episode, but the, the short and dirty of it is, I, I believe we may have mentioned this in the past on Stuff They Want You to Know. When refrigeration companies came out, they were entering an industry, an ice industry that already existed. And the ice industry of the time did not create ice. They traveled up to, I think the ones in New York traveled up to Canada and they would cut out blocks of ice and they would cover it with hay and then they would haul ass down to New York where they would sell the ice. So the refrigeration guys show up. They're the, they're the new kids on the block, new fridge on the block, whatever you want to call it, new kids on the ice block. We can go a lot of different ways with this. And those, And when the refrigeration guys showed up, the industry that existed that was based entirely on uh, cutting and hauling ice did not see them as allies or did not see them as an opportunity. Instead, they sought to shut that industry down. They invested in faster trucks, in different types of hay, <laughs> in different tires, uh, because they did not see or were not ready to see the future for what it was. And this this kind of you can call it a couple different things. Path dependence is one um, wherein we're so comfortable with the status quo, a process or a technology that um, we are hesitant, companies, individuals, groups, governments, we are hesitant to embrace the new stuff because it uh, may upend the status quo. So shout out to those ice truckers, Nelson Laugh. <laughs> so it is a, a crazy thing to think about, uh, if, especially if you boil it down to an individual or to an individual level. So we're talking about innovation, especially in technology, when something new comes along. And then really you're talking about money, the costs associated with retrofitting or replacing existing technology. So if you're talking about a single farmer and a new technology comes along that is, you know, not only more efficient, but it's safer for an animal or something like that, you're talking about an individual person that then probably has to get a major loan or work out something with whoever is distributing the stuff to then retrofit or change everything. Mm -hmm. Otherwise get, get left behind. Well, and not to mention probably lose, you know, a large portion of, of time and money doing that process to where you have to move all of your livestock out or something. I mean, it's just, you can, you can see why there's that pushback against innovation and has been historically. Totally. Yeah. And I love the farmer's example there, too, because one of the, one of the big ways those changes happen uh, tend to be, in the developed world, government subsidies, which are their own uh, very sticky bag of badgers. But we're, we're – God, we're doing a great job setting this up. I hope the rest of the episode is this good. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to jinx us or knock on wood. Uh, yeah. These points are all these points are all valid and there aren't really clear answers. That's the dilemma. There are also bad actors at play, people who don't mind 
uh, skirting the rules, cutting corners or breaking the law to maintain their position in a certain economic hierarchy. That's I know that sounds like a lot of gobbledygook, but it, it's true. In our last episode, we we explored this in a um, in a number of examples. It's a question that people don't ask themselves very often in the West. Why is meat so cheap? <laughs> like when you consider all of the um, the care, the skill, uh, the the resources that are required to raise cattle, raise chickens, raise pigs, uh, then it's weird that you can just go somewhere and and, and get a pr- pretty nice steak without breaking the bank. Uh, this this is this is an effect of the way the industry is set up. And again, as we said in our previous episode. None of this is a ding on farmers. None of this is a ding on the people who work in these industries. And there is a very solid argument to be made that modern – a big piece of modern civilization as we understand it cannot survive without this industry. We cannot just shut off the switch. We'll leave millions out of work. Um, There will spell economic disaster in a number of areas. But why are we even talking about that? We check out that first episode. In today's episode, we're examining another aspect of the livestock industry, and it's one that remains highly divisive in the modern day. Several of our fellow listeners wrote to us about this after episode one. And here's here's what we're focusing on. The animals themselves. Is, here are the facts. I, I, I guarantee you this is true. This is so weird in Twilight Zone. Believe it or not. There are people in the developed world who have never seen a cow in person, have never seen a pig, maybe never seen a chicken. Those are three of the largest meat sources around. People eat millions of cows and chickens and pigs. But can you imagine never actually seen one except on (laughs) TV? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's sort of the whole point of the meat packing industry is to uh, create that divide between people's food, the actual living version of it, and then eating it. Because, you know, there's a lot of violence and kind of gnarly stuff that goes into killing your own, raising and killing your own food that a lot of regular old American kind of middle class folks probably couldn't stomach. Yeah, it's true. Um Another thing to point out here is that many of us, especially in our generation, have this fondness of animals that have been uh, that that have been portrayed in in these big movies. I, I'm thinking. I mean, it's not necessarily factory farming. Maybe Babe is a really good example. Charlotte's uh, Web. Mm-hmm. Charlotte's Web, where where uh, an animal is is humanized to such an extent. You know, and and given a name and can talk and and we feel the emotions there with them that we've developed a connection, a different kind of connection to uh, animals that are that we eat. Yeah, an absolutely imaginary and idealized connection, Mm. (laughs) that would argue, right? You can you can befriend um, cows and you can befriend uh, pigs, people, uh, you know, if you've worked with chickens before and you're on the audience today, let us know uh, your take on chickens. I remember in um, in a different lifetime in a rural area, there was this <laughs> there was this one chicken in this place I was living that was like known as the bad chicken. Everybody in this um, community like knew there was this chicken that was just an asshole. And that's the only time I've heard of a chicken personality, but I I don't know every chicken. I was once chased by a chicken. 
Uh, <laughs> didn't care for it one bit. It was at like a yurt. You ever stayed at a yurt? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was at a yurt. There was a resident chicken and it chased me. And uh, my girlfriend at the time had to shoo it away with a broomstick because as you guys know, I'm a little anti-bird and, and it was freaking me out. Uh, and chickens are so aggressive when they come at you like that. They're like the way geese kind of come at you. But um, it's true. I mean, there is sort of, you know, I know people that have raised their own chickens that have their own goats that, you know, and the goats, that's, they're not raising them to slaughter them. They're raising them to graze and to maybe give milk or something like that. And oftentimes the chickens are just raised to give eggs. And I actually found out that if you hatch a male chicken, not only you don't want it in the hen house because then the eggs will be fertilized and you'll just get more baby chickens as opposed to eggs. They're total assholes, like you're saying, Ben. And you often there's a there's a like a service of some kind that where you take your male chicken and you donate it to the service. And then they fight those chickens. Yeah, that's maybe. Oh, you no, know, no, no, that's no, the, no. the dark side of of, uh, of chicken, male chicken yeah. donation. It's I, I, the pollo dome. <laughs> I would just say kind of similar to that. And I don't want to stick on this too long, but I do have a very good friend of mine that has several chickens and the his daughters have named the chickens and they do seem to have different personalities and they do. I don't I don't I I I'd like to hear from everybody listening just what their experience is there. Because yeah. they seem cool to me. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, less uh, f- far be it for us to malign chickens unfairly. Um, they're not they're not as intelligent as corvids, but a uh, few few birds are. Uh, so you're right, though, guys. We see we see these depictions in film and documentaries. You might the last time you saw cattle might have been a brief clip in the local news. On uh, on some with some anchor taking note of uh, an aspect of the economy, uh, we encounter the remains of these animals easily every day. Uh, we see them in the local grocery store. We see them in a fast food chain or in a restaurant. And in the U.S., this disassociation between the the thing you eat, the thing that ends up on your plate, and a living thing goes even further. I mean, think about it. You won't in, in Many of the garden variety grocery stores, you'll not only see a a fairly limited type of meat, right? But you'll also see limited parts of those types, thighs, breasts, chops, ribs, ground up flesh. You might see tongue, you might see liver, but um, you probably won't see eyes unless you go to the cool places. Well, even tongue and, 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 and liver sometimes. I mean, liver is more common, I think, at like a, a regular chain grocery store. But tongue, that's more of a specialty thing or something you might see at like a carniceria or something like that. Or like just, a, just a hanging Mexican on Buford Highway or something. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's where I go, actually. Mm-hmm. I go Buford Highway, uh, Norcross, Nam De Munge. There Shout out go. to the Buford Highway's farmer market too. Oh yeah, my god, yeah, yeah. it's amazing. Get their uh, get their pre-marinated pollo or like whatever else they do. They do all they do it all up themselves and they also make fresh tortillas there. Highly recommend if anyone's ever passing through. But like I, you know, and even like we're talking about the food prep, we're all I think into cooking. Um I might eat a tongue taco, but I don't know that I would buy a tongue and slice it up myself for preparation to make something. That's a bridge too far for me personally. You know? Well, yeah, because some of that stuff's it, it culturally is is off limits, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, we don't. It's it's fascinating because without a real concrete set of laws and consequences in the U.S. and Canada and many other parts of the world, uh, cultures seem to have generated their own 
so I, I would call them soft taboos, right? No one's, no one's going to arrest you for eating something they think is weird, but it's just like not done in polite society. Uh, these taboos dictate wh- which animals can be eaten, which parts can be eaten or considered, you know, normal food. So, you know, we said it's uncommon to see eyes on a menu. You might also be weirded out. If you go to your local diner or your local hangout restaurant and they say, hey, we have a special on foxes, we're just we're out of chicken wings. So it's it's just fox legs or. Yeah, dude, seriously. Or brain. Brain is a fairly mm-hmm. common thing in some places, but it's hard to imagine it being in many places. You know, it's well, funny. It dangerous. I, I, you can. You're absolutely right, Ben. You can get. Yeah, there's like brain. I forget the name, but there are definitely prions. exactly prions. prions that can exist in brain. But I grew up my my grandpa, who was like an old North Carolina tobacco merchant. You know, uh, that was what how he made a living when he was a, a young man. Um, his favorite breakfast was something called brains and eggs, and I ate it blindly and thought it was delicious. And only years later, separated from it, thought it was a little weird. But I definitely, you could buy it at the grocery store and also liver pudding. Ben, you and I on the uh, road trip we did with uh, with car stuff back in the day, um, they call it Scrapple in certain parts of the Midwest, I believe, or the, the Northwest. Uh, and it's literally kind of a pureed, like fried pate-ish substance made of liver. Also known as pan rabbit, mush of pork scraps. But, but you're right, uh, brain, eyes. Thing, things of this nature in some some places like um, one of my favorite restaurants shout out I'm, I don't know if they listen to the show but St. John in London the guy Fergus Henderson made his name in the culinary world by taking all that stuff that people wouldn't usually eat pancreas awful sweetbreads and so on and elevating it and selling it as uh, haute cuisine uh, but that's kind of unusual And that worked, that amazed people because it was an unusual thing because a lot of people in the United Kingdom were now eating things that they ordinarily would not have considered consumables. Like another example of a soft cultural taboo here in the U.S. is that uh, certain animals would never be considered food. Perish the thought and you have offended me if you suggest uh, that we should eat dogs or certain birds even. You know what I mean? Um, and cats, I would add to that list, too. And we've talked about this casually on the show, but it's an interesting line. It's an interesting division where it's like, to your point, Matt, you know, we sort of uh, anthropomorphize these pigs through like movies and animated things or like, you know, deer and Bambi or rabbit. Like rabbit's OK to eat, but dog's not OK to eat. Yet both are kept as pets and both are considered cute. So like the line is interesting and confusing to me. I'm not saying we should go eat horse or whatever, but um, I know that in certain Asian countries, that's totally fine. So the taboos of these things, it eludes me a little bit. And, and I'm, it seems like a little bit of a double standard. I'm interested to see what you guys think about that. I don't know. I, I think maybe you just looked at different parts of the world historically and, you know, what what are considered, what what animals or what foods are considered taboo. Uh, a lot of it can, can have historical uh, religious relevance as to why you don't eat something. Like, let's say... Uh, if you're if you live in a country that has a large number of people who identify as Muslim or follow you know Islam, they're you're not going to be eating pork. Um, what what are, what are some other examples of that? India, a very large percent of the population practices Hinduism, so cows are considered sacred rather than livestock. 
What's interesting about those two examples in those those cultures, uh, the animals are left kind of alone for very different reasons. In one, the animal, the cow, is considered sacred in a way. And in the other one, the pig is just considered unclean and gross. <laughs> and it's haram to even mess with them, you know? Totally. And, and, and to, to your original point about looking elsewhere in the country to, for, for these kind of taboos, in Iceland, a traditional dish is boiled sheep's head. And you eat the whole thing. Uh, the ears, the eyes, the lips, the, you know, all of that stuff. And then in this article from The Salt uh, from NPR, um, someone asked the individual describing this, well, where's the brain? To which they were looked at with a gasp, kind of like horror, like, oh, we would never eat the brain, <laughs> but the eyeballs and the lips and the face, totally fine. I don't want to keep us off topic too long because uh, longtime listeners, as you know, uh, the three of us can sit around and talk about food forever Yeah, because we love it. Sorry about uh, that. No, no, no. I'm sorry. There's there's a one. I'm sorry in advance because there's one other thing I have to shout out. I'm fascinated by it. Kale Pache. It's the Iranian sheep head soup, and uh, it's, the, it's the sheep's head with the brain, just in case you're going to ask, Noel, and trotters, and it's, they're, they're the shops set up that only serve this soup, and they're only open from like 3 a.m. to 7 a.m. or something. I, 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 it's on my bucket list for Tehran. It has nothing to do with the, today's show unless you want to send us uh, some examples of Kalebati or send us examples of um, regional foods in your neck of the global woods that you think other people might be surprised by. No judgment. Because, again, these rules are not constant. They change. You know what I mean? Um, horse meat is popular in some parts of Europe, and it's considered taboo in many parts of the U.S. So we can explain part of this weird what is or is not livestock phenomenon through a cultural lens. Uh, but then we also have to, you know, note that there are people who object to the consumption of certain animals, might be a pescatarian, no mammals for you, but fish are fine, or they object to the consumption of all animals. And there are other factors at play here aside from uh, cultural factors. And, you know, we, we have to look at where these folks are coming from, because people don't usually do stuff without some sort of internal logic. So one, their health concerns. You're, you know, you're in your mid fifties. You've uh, lived a satiating, gluttonous life, and your doctor says, "Look, man, you have to either break up with bacon or break up with the idea that you're going to live to be eighty years old." Yeah, and then boom, you know. And, and part of the same coin, there is a younger person who has learned about the most recent, you know, nutritional facts or something in school or by a friend or something. And then they're choosing not to do that. Right. But for the same reasons, for health reasons. The next one, Ben, I would say is really the heart of what this episode is. A, a, an emotional revulsion to the whole process or, or to one part of the process or just to the thought at all of eating an animal. Right, yeah. I mean, no fooling. Matt, there are people who watched Babe at a young age and probably decades later think, I could never eat pork. I loved Babe. I have the Blu-ray. 
<laughs> what, what, what kind of person would I be? I watch the Pig in the City director's commentary once a year. You know? <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, in this, you know, and I guess you could categorize that in two ways. Revulsion at the thought of eating the animal. But then the other one, which we're going to give you a little caveat here. A lot of what we're going to talk about following this moment in the episode there's going to be cruelty to animals in here. There's going to be inhumane conditions we're going to discuss. There's going to be a lot of things that's going to be unpleasant and unsettling. So if you don't like that stuff or, if, you know, if it's going to trigger you, trigger you for some reason, go ahead and pause here. The, the other reason is people object to the cruelty that or the pain that could be involved in the process in a factory farm or some other set or setting where animals are raised specifically for food. Yep. You're right, because research proves that uh, some of these animals can indeed experience emotional states similar to the emotional states of a human being. Like if you have a if you have a dog, then you know that your dog has moods, predilections, a personality. Uh, cattle and uh, pigs are are the are the same way they can experience things like grief, joy, pain, and so on. Of course, we don't want to anthropomorphize these are not humans, right um but they are still mammals, so the structure of their brain is similar, which means that the traffic patterns, if you want to think of neural activity that way, are in a way similar. I propose we pause for a word from our sponsor. <laughs> I wonder who it's going to be this time. <laughs> and, uh, Chick-fil-A. <laughs> then we'll be, and then we'll be back to examine this. And I know just briefly uh, to add to what uh, Matt just said, uh, we know that sometimes people get uh, put off by these kind of examinations because they've, it might feel like it's preachy or it might feel like, uh, we're telling you to do things. But as you know, that is not the job of this show and has never been the mission of this show. We want to we want to bring you the facts and then some frightening speculation right at the end. Uh, so, so we'll be right back. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. 
Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, was bought it? Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene! Run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. She's breathing right now? Yes, she's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back. So that last point we left on, the idea that some people object to the consumption of meat because they um, they do not feel comfortable or perhaps they don't feel ethical when they imagine that they are some way they're in some way contributing to the unnecessary pain of another living thinking thing. This is a controversial stance because, look, we've got on one side of the argument, people have chosen to minimize as much as possible their participation in what they see as animal cruelty. Um, in, and they may, in addition to abstaining from some or all types of meat, they may also refuse to wear clothing from animal products. They may also say, look, dairy, I'm, I'm just, I'm not into it either. And Dairy is weird. I get it. Cheese is awesome. But if you explained to another species what milk is, <laughs> the fact that we're down with it, it would be kind of weird. It'd be weird. It'd be a weird moment uh, in extraterrestrial relations. I do feel weird giving it to my son every morning. He wants milk. I give him milk. And I just think about it. I look at the container and I just go, okay. Think of the calcium. I know. He's yeah. That kid is, by the way, folks, growing at a breakneck pace. Yeah, so watch out. You, you got to feed the engine there. But but there's you know there's another side. So that's like what let's call that one extreme, one extreme end of the spectrum. On the other side of that spectrum, there are individuals 
and organizations who are saying, you know, yeah, this system, if you want to think of it as a system, it may not be perfect, but it works. And some of these changes they want to do, although it might make you feel good as a person who wants these changes, they're just not economically feasible. We can't instantly do this and without wrecking the entire uh, house of cards. Uh, then, you know, typically people on that end of the spectrum would say we can roll some of these changes out slowly over a given time span. But in general, this, I, I'd love to hear what you guys think about this. In general, we find that if you remove every fa- every financial economic factor and you ask people, what do you think about the lives of these animals? Then people seem on board with improving them in numbers that surprised me, although I did pull from one very biased study, just to be completely transparent. From the ASPCA? Yes. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, yeah, let's, let's, go through, uh, let's go through what it found. First of all, the vast majority, 89% of Americans, are in fact concerned with the whole industry of industrial animal agriculture. This idea of animal cruelty uh, is top uh, of, of mind there. Um, people want to make sure that animals are treated humanely. Uh, also, worker safety. And, of course, another biggie being public health uh, also came up as top concerns. Farmers who were surveyed, uh, who participated in the survey, seemed on board as well, um, with 85% of farmers and their families supporting a complete ban on new industrial animal agriculture facilities, uh, which is almost twice the level of support that was expressed by the public, which is fascinating, I mean, but also makes sense since they're so close to it and those things you mentioned at the top of the show, Ben, about how this can affect their livelihood and the idea of more competition. That's certainly a part of it as well. Um, 82% of respondents believe that the government should mandate slower slaughter speeds to protect workers, animals, or public health. This one's a little confusing to me. I think we should unpack this. They're, when, they're not talking about slow motion killing the animals. That's okay. Just that, making sure. Because that, that would be the opposite of that. Yeah, let's just torture the animals to death. That would be more humane. Um, explain, if you, if you don't mind. Well, I'm. Uh, this is just me spitballing, but I'm imagining that's killing fewer animals on a, let's say, daily or weekly basis or, you know, hourly basis, just depending on the time frames they're speaking about there. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, And then 65% or two-thirds of the public that participated reported that they believe poor worker protection and harsh working conditions um, will increase people's inhumane treatment of farm animals, which also makes sense because if you're under the gun or you feel like your welfare is not being looked after, uh, you're not going to be as careful and you're going to just try to get the job done as quickly as possible so you can move on. Um, Then more than half, 57% believed that this mistreatment also increases health risks to the public. Ding, ding, ding. There it is. So uh, just real quick, the you nailed it on slaughter speeds. The What they're talking about is what would also be described as a line speed. It's how much how much volume are we doing per, you know, per processing day. And uh, the concern there is a little bit, I would say, less on the individual animal and more so on the um, 
the opportunities it raises for things to go wrong. Because these, a lot of these slaughter lines, especially at the large industrial scale, it's like if you've seen somebody speed running a video game on Twitch. It's there's not a pause, you know. It's just a shift. There's just a shift change. And, and of course, it's, it's we, horrifying yeah. if you actually watch it at that speed. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, we should note ASPCA is far from a neutral source. Still, again, there appears to be wide support with uh, with the statistics you, you just brought us. Well, there seems to be wide support in the public in general to say, like, hey, if it's no skin off my back, you know, if it's no bacon off my burger, then, yeah, I don't want – to torture animals. It's pretty basic. It's not a controversial stance. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, Ben, but are, are slaughterhouses still um, manually killing cattle with those bolt guns that we are so fond of, especially when they're used uh, as like murder weapons by sociopaths in uh, in movies? Um, I, I, you know, they're like an air powered bolt gun that shoots out a large projectile through the cow's brain, instantly killing it and then pulling it back. It depends it depends on where you are, right? And which factory and, again, that technological advancement, like where are you on the line uh, or the timeline of advancing? Because that part of the of the slaughterhouse is called the killing floor, which I've always uh, found that to be a very eerie name. And I imagine if you're moving through a lot of cattle, uh, that killing floor could be absolutely soaked in blood pretty quickly. And I wonder if that's something where that could cause, like, fall hazards or ways of, you know, perhaps being injured by some of these high-powered equip machines, you know? I don't know. Like, I'm wondering, like, how does the volume increase the uh, danger to the employees? Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Well, you're, what we're talking about there with the Bolt or with uh, Anton Sugar is the is the mechanical method. You're stunning the animal. So there there are a number of other methods that have been used. And as you said, Matt, it does vary from place to place. A lot of places, a lot of countries have laws that ostensibly determine how, uh, how an animal should be slaughtered or processed. And those laws are, I would say, primarily centered on health concerns for humans. And it's a very important thing. And of course, you know, this is a concept that is not new uh, it's not something that modern civilization came up with. Uh, ancient religions have very specific rules about which animals can be consumed and how and how they should be slaughtered. And if you look back at those rules through the modern lens, then you see that they're actually their plans for good hygiene <laughs> to prevent the spread of disease. Yeah, and that's it's it's so fascinating. That's what it's been about even some of the ancient rules that you could find in the bible about certain things to wear or eat it was in a way in many cases a health situation <laughs> it's very strange it's very strange i always wanted to read to read that uh to read some of those texts in a modern parlance just like rewritten to say avoiding trichinosis Verse one, chapter yeah. one. <laughs> it's like that's just Leviticus is now trichinosis. That's that is funny. fascinating. I didn't realize that the bolt gun just stunned the animal because you see it used, you know, in, in movies as, as a, a, an instant kill. I mean, it, but it is. You're right. It just goes into their forehead and typically stuns them after one hit. Uh, very rarely after two, and then they're hung upside down and their throats are slashed and they're bled out. And then you know processing 
uh, commences from there. May also be electrically shocked or, you know, that's is still a stunning move. But here's our question. What exactly goes on behind the scenes? What are these animals lives like? And what does that mean for human beings? Spoiler, whether or not you consider yourself a meat eater, whether or not you care in general, how does this affect you? Here's where it gets crazy. Let's do the gross part first. Let's focus on a factory farm. Let's focus on a cow. As a matter of fact, do you guys want to style on it a little? Do we want to give this cow a name? No. Myrtle. Myrtle. Okay. So Myrtle the cow. Uh, Myrtle the cow is born in uh, old school, like think of pastoral scenes from your favorite works of historical fiction. In old school farms, a cow can roam free and, and have a normal lifespan of about 25 years or so. If it's not slaughtered for food, uh, if nothing goes wrong. Cattle raised for beef, let's say Myrtle is raised for beef in this situation, uh, she is one of about 41 million cows raised this way in the U.S. So she has pretty good odds of spending her first year on the range, walking around in the field, eating grass, mooing at stuff, playing because cows play. And then after that year, Myrtle and her cohort are shipped to something called a Concentrated Animal Feeding Operation, or CAFO. Yeah, the old CAFO. This is what you'll you'll hear referred to as a stockyard a lot of times, if you ever hear that word, uh, feedlot sometimes. Um, and, you know, by the way, it does make a difference if Myrtle is male or female, because uh, many times the female is going to be dealing dealing with a whole different Mm. Uh, set of issues. Uh, if it's a male, we'll talk about that too. But the biggest problem at these places is overcrowding many times, not always, but at many factory farm operations, overcrowding is the worst thing because things become un- unsanitary very quickly for the, the, the cattle. And um, a lot of times to save money, depending on the operation, different kinds of feed will be used. Corn has been a big issue. I think we've talked about that on an episode before when we were talking about the various uses of corn. But Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. I know we made a video about it at some point. Corn's in everything. Corn's in everything. Before they shut the podcast down, you have to know, if you travel to the U.S. Uh, and you're not from here, you will be amazed by how many ingredient lists of various products have somehow have corn in the mix. Corn is everywhere. It's like... um. It, it's like the Kevin Bacon of the cast of uh, of an ingredient list. Anyway, yeah, you're and, right. And it's not even the good kind. It's not those sweet kernels that you can get in the can, you know, those delicious ones or that are in the, well, what is it, the creamed corn. Oh, man, when I was a kid, creamed corn. Ooh. <laughs> you were a creamed corn kid? I was a creamed corn kid because you could make so many things out of it, especially if you were baking with it. Oh, it's good stuff. Okay, uh, where, what am I talking about? Um, the uh, miserable, the feed. Uh, the feed. Yeah, all of these things combined together can can make a pretty miserable existence for uh, an individual animal. And then you take all of that misery together in one big place at one of these stockyards, y- yikes. Now, guys, uh, is, is it true that um, some more sickly cows that perhaps die before they get to the feedlot are 
destroyed and ground up and made into feed that can be fed to other cows? Isn't that supposedly where mad cow disease came from, this practice? Or or is that just rumor stuff? Yeah, it gets it gets rough, man, because, you know, a lot of these animals are living a very challenging life. And we can introduce this concept now. You you know how you'll see like USDA grade A prime or USDA blah, blah, blah. When you're in the grocery store, the far end of that is what's called 4D meat, meat from animals that are dead or they're disabled upon their arrival at the slaughterhouse. And they end up, you might see their, their bodies, they're considered not fit for human consumption, but they, they end up in pet food, right? Or they're rendered or they're used, uh, to feed animals in zoos and things like that. For sure. And and, and after doing a little more research, um, it, it, it does appear that the mad cow disease or bovine uh, spongiform encephalopathy uh, or BSE it involved the feeding of cattle parts to cattle, and it did lead to some restrictions on which parts of cattle can be fed back to cattle. But there is still some of that happening. Um, things like hooves, ground up bone, and other, you know, uh, remnant parts from, you know, because they don't want to waste anything. But yeah, that is a thing. And that's pretty yeah. disturbing. That's a good idea. Let's let's force the herbivores to consume themselves. That's great. Not only is it cannibalism, it's not something they would ever eat in the wild. It's an Ouroboros <laughs> of sorts. Yeah. Well, okay. So let's, okay. So back to Myrtle. Myrtle is a beef cow. There, there are two things happening. Uh, if Myrtle is, whether or not Myrtle is male or female, uh, she's going to get an ID tag popped in her ear. That makes sense. Everybody's seen that. I. If she's male, then her testicles will be removed. Her horns will be gouged out. This occurs without anesthesia. It's a cost-cutting measure. And like you said, Matt, the the main problem here is the intensely crowded conditions. This is a perfect storm for bacteria and infections. And to combat that, cows are injected with heavy doses of antibiotics as well as hormones. The entire goal of these injections is to keep the animals relatively healthy and to ensure that they can survive up until the time of their slaughter. This is going to be important later. Just remember that part. I think, you know, if you heard episode one, you, you know where we're going. So now to, to the slaughterhouse, not the Eminem-sponsored hip-hop group, which I think is pretty good. Uh, the actual slaughterhouse where the cattle meet their end. So after leaving that feedlot or stockyard or, or, or CAFO, uh, the cattle are then shipped to the slaughterhouses. Um, and technically only the animals that are able to walk to their own slaughter are in fact slaughtered. Um, cattle that are too weak or who, who aren't able to get up are euthanized so they do not reach the food production process. Um, that could be for various reasons because they're too, they're not, they're not beefy enough to make beef or they could be sickly. Uh, there's, there's, you know, they don't want to introduce that into the food supply chain. However, each animal, uh, this is something that, you know, we, we think about um, the business of this. Each individual animal represents money, represents a dollar amount, a financial investment to various people 
stakeholders <laughs> along the uh, the supply chain. Um, so these animals may be prodded to stand upright and forced to stagger into the slaughterhouse, despite not being fit for consumption. And if they can't make it, they uh, may be just left for dead. That's Myrtle's life as a cow raised for beef. But let's say Myrtle is a cow raised for dairy. What's it like there? Well, she will be kept in indoor facilities. Uh, she'll be fed and watered. Uh, she will not go outside to graze. Uh, there is a mechanical process used to remove her urine and feces. Uh, the milk from her udders is removed by machines, hooked to the udders, of course. Uh, her tail will be docked so that it's easier for uh, dairy workers to hook up the machines. Uh, and this this surgery is also without the use of anesthesia. And studies show that it does it does induce lasting chronic pain. Just to run through the last one, the last possi- one of the last possibilities, veal. Let's say Myrtle is a particularly unlucky male calf. Myrtle, the, the male Myrtle, will be taken from the mother either at birth or within the first 24 hours or so, uh, placed in what's called a veal crate. Veal crate is about 22 inches wide, about 58 inches long. Uh, They will spend their entire lives there uh, chained up in the crate because the whole thing about veal is restricting movement of the animal, right? Because it makes them more tender, right? That's correct. And kept in near total darkness and then slaughtered approximately 18 to 20 weeks. It reminds me of um, the scene in American Gods where you see a child raised in darkness with no interaction. And then eventually when they are brought forth, they are uh, killed in a sacrifice. And that show's coming back, actually. I've been seeing promos for it. It got picked up by... Another network, I think. It was on Stars and then got canceled, and now it appears to be back. I can't recall which network it's on, but I was glad to see that because I thought that was very well done. Obviously, big fans of the book as well. Um, so what what does all this mean? What does all this amount to in terms of how one should view the food production process? Is it safe? Is it humane? Like, what? where does this leave us? We'll tell you after a word from our sponsor. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer? Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. 
So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, was we'll it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastor on the business. I understand now. It's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene! Run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back. We're back. And, you know, we don't want to be sanctimonious. We don't want to be preachy because, uh, honestly, that doesn't that doesn't change stuff, in my opinion. The facts are this. Obviously, this is not the kind of life Myrtle or any animal would choose unless it was a particularly disturbed <laughs> cow. Uh, if it had the choice, it would be like, no, I don't, I don't want to do this. I want to be in the veal crate and get your weird machine away from my udders. And obviously, given the opportunity, most individual humans would rather avoid causing unnecessary pain, not just to cows, but to like other living things. We're not a species that in general just gets off on, on walking by and like kicking puppies or something. You know, we think we like we think highly of ourselves in that regard. And when we are given the opportunity, we like to think that we're people who would just rather not needlessly injure someone else. But again, we are talking about people's livelihoods. There are people listening right now who know that a huge part of the economy depends on the livestock industry and yeah, it's incredibly tempting to get sanctimonious about the unsafe and cruel practices of factory farming while ignoring the fact that millions of people need these jobs. Uh, but at some point, it also becomes impossible for us to ignore the knock-on or the fallout effects that these practices can have. 
not just on animals, but on humans at the other end of the supply chain, even if you do not eat meat, this affects you. I mean, I guess first we could talk about the animals, right? How, uh, how are they feeling? I, I think no one asked them if they wanted to do this. Yeah, that's very true. Well, for the animal, it's terrible. Uh, since, since we know, as we talked about before, they can experience some emotional states, some cognitive states that humans can, that you can, uh, then going through any, all of this process is going to be horrifying. Even if it's the only thing you know, right? Even if we're just in that cattle situation with one of these little veal calves, the only thing you've ever known is you, you're born, you're put into this thing, this is all you know, but you are never, you never experience a lot of the things that you could potentially experience uh, as a cow. I mean, it's, it's pretty horrifying. And again, all you have to do is put yourself in that situation for a moment or just think about it for a second. If it was you doing it, what would it be like? And you can tell just how bad this really could be and is. The, the other thing is, if you are a cow, especially the veal one, you, you don't understand what the government policies are for your local, you know, state where you just happen to be born or, or you know, the county where you're in or even the country that you're in. <laughs> it doesn't understand the profit motive of whatever big factory farm in which you find yourself. Uh, it doesn't understand a great number of things uh, and it can't. And it's just stuck in that situation. It's true. And this, the, I, I think this is pretty obvious, right? I, I don't, I don't think anybody is functioning under an illusion otherwise. But one piece of this that a lot of people have missed, one aspect where these cost-cutting methods, uh, where these, um, th this endless race to become more efficient at lower price points, there is one huge uh, point where this. This can end up costing us as a species a great deal. This is where the rubber or, or the hooves, I guess, hit the road. Uh, there is danger to the public. We touched on this briefly in our previous episode, but let's dive deeper because a lot of people are listening, asking us, well, okay, all right, fine, I get it. Livestock industry is not perfect. What is? Uh, and how on earth is the livestock industry, of all things, a public health risk? I mean, come on, guys, that's... That's kind of wild. We'll show you. I also would have accepted where the trotters meet the track. Uh, mm -hmm. That would have been also fine. Where, where the tails meet the turnpike. Indeed, yeah. So let's take it from a public health perspective from none other than Atlanta's own Centers for Disease Control. Uh, more than 2 million illnesses, they say, and an estimated 23,000 deaths each year are the result of antibiotic resistance. Um, we've talked about something like these ideas of superbugs, and that largely stems from the overuse of antibiotics on our food that we eat. Antibiotic resistance in animals occurs when they consume too many antibiotics and develop drug-resistant bacteria in their stomachs that are then or can be passed on from animals to humans under a handful of uh, conditions. The biggest one is, is if you don't eat meat at a proper temperature, if it hasn't been cooked fully enough. Get that a is meat a thermometer, folks. Get a meat thermometer. Don't eyeball it. Don't leave anything up to chance. Meat thermometer. <laughs> get a yeah. remote control one. Yeah, totally. It's a, good, it's a good opportunity to get a gadget. Who doesn't love a good gadget? And this 
yeah, this all comes the public health risk all comes down uh, to drugs. Yes. This factor. You could talk about you could talk about um, deforestation as well. Maybe that's something for another episode because that's about much more than the livestock industry and the effects on uh, climate uh, climate change. But yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, you're right. When, uh, in 2013, more than 131,000 tons of antibiotics were used on food animals. Food animals is just the vague description for st- stuff that is raised to be eaten. By 2030, this will rise to more than an estimated 200,000 tons a year. Uh, the the stuff we're talking about, these antibiotics to be specific, are like tetracyclines, uh, tylosin, bacitracin, and ethromycin. Just just to give you the, the specifics there, there's a lot of back and forth with government approval of these things in different countries. Um, the EU and the U.S. are forever in, a, <laughs> in an argument about importing food created in the U.S. because of these antibiotic and hormone injection practices. What happens? What happens? You're, you're exposed. The whole time that Myrtle is living out a, a miserable existence, uh, she is also home to a new kind of bacterial life. It is not vulnerable to the same antibiotics that killed its predecessors. It spreads, it grows, and just like Myrtle, it doesn't really see the larger picture. It's not aware of NGOs. It, it I guess it may be... Uh, is aware of antibiotics because it successfully whips their asses, but it carries on its merry little way. And once it reaches human beings through, you know, improperly cooked meat, through contamination of feces, something like that, people can acquire this. And once people acquire this stuff, just like COVID-19, right? Uh, once people acquire this stuff, then, um, well, the anachronistic phrase would be it's Katie bar the door because this stuff can spread so quickly and you don't have to eat meat, therefore, to be infected. In 2013, in fact, same year we pulled some of this other info from, researchers showed that you could be 30% more likely to get specific bacterial infections just by living near pig farms or living near crops that were fertilized with pig manure. You had 30% higher likelihood of becoming infected with Staphylococcus aureus bacteria, which is resistant to some antibodies. And we are in no way prepared by the, for this, by the by. <laughs> we, are, we are not ready, man. That's right. And uh, Aisha Faruqi, who is a uh, infectious disease specialist, um, says that humanity just isn't prepared for what might be down the road. Oh, wait, humanity's not prepared for a, a, a pandemic situation? That's surprising. Um, yeah. And she says this. We have very few new antibiotics being introduced and manufactured when compared to the emergence of resistant bacteria or germs. Um, she goes on to say, if this situation is not well controlled, now we may lose this battle between germs and antibiotics, which could lead us to a crisis situation where we may not have any antibiotics left to combat resistant bacteria. 
uh, and it's a little different, but like, for example, with the current COVID-19 situation, we have this vaccine now, but we now know that there is a new strain of it that could be more resistant to the vaccine that they've been working, you know, long and hard to uh, create for the one that we knew about. So this isn't exactly the same as mutating. I mean, it is, I guess, Ben, right? Like, is becoming resistant to antibiotics similar to mutating, or is it literally just kind of developing uh, a... Um, uh, a tolerance to the the drugs that could actually, you know, uh, eradicate it. Yeah, that that would be a, a, a mutation. Yes, I thought G- so. Gaining a, a resistance to something like that. Yeah, we're this is this is definitely worst case. Like it's worst case scenario, but it's something that we can see happening uh, if we continue down the route. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well said. It's it's worse. It's a worst case scenario, but we're in like a store that sells the worst cases. You know, yes, the worst cases, guys. the worst cases. That's like the Su- as seen on TV store. Basically. <laughs> yeah. Just like suitcases with yeah. no handles. Oh, love it. One's a pandemic. Yeah. Another one is starvation. Uh-huh. And then gamma ray blast. Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh, you're Drew talking about the sharper just, image. Excuse me. That's what you're talking about. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so you're right. We are not ready. Um, and there's not a clear answer as to how we can effectively prepare for this stuff. It's spooky, and it's, you know, I'll be honest with you, it's more than a little bit disappointing and depressing. Like, what, this is how the world ends? Not with a bang, but with a cow bug? Spare me. Where are the explosions? Where are the, like, Where's the Book of Revelation stuff we were promised? Oh, there that's that's coming, too. That is is coming. (laughs) And, And, guys, what do you think about the way... You know, this coronavirus pandemic and the politicization of it has sort of reduced um, faith, I guess, in experts like the CDC and experts like, you know, Dr. Fauci or whatever, who have been saying one thing all along. And because it's been politicized, I think there's a polarization against science. And now it's like going to take the CDC some time to kind of claw back that credibility. Is, is that setting us back even further to help us prevent something like this? Political acumen and scientific talent are two very different skill sets. That's the, I think that's one of the big issues. Uh, you can have, you can have the up-to-date research, you can have the facts, but if you do not, if you do not know how to communicate it effectively, then you are shouting into the void. That's, I mean, that's just a reality. That's not a ding on the politicians or on the scientists, but the science, the science is there. Um, I could see, I could see some polarization. I could see it be more difficult, but I would also say a super bug that emerged this way the the first thing that would be, happen would be a very intense game of hot pandemic potato, where just like we saw with COVID, where other actors and countries and, and individuals are trying to assign blame on someone who is not them. That's that's a very brutal and short way to explain it, but that is immediately what would happen. Uh, and you know, this if it came from a large corporation of some sort. It's active in the livestock industry, and we talked about some of the biggest ones in our previous episode. Then they would they would have to take accountability. They would be forced by the by the government of a given country to do so, but it wouldn't solve the problem at all. I, like right now, it might sound like we're making um, we're making a big deal about some old beans here, but you might say, "Hey, well, sure, guys, the potential is troubling, but this is all still a hypothetical." So. The hold your horses, pump your brakes. Uh, however, the answer is 
No, this is not hypothetical. This has happened. This is happening now. As you listen to this, I don't know why I'm smiling like this. Uh, I think it's 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 a reaction to to the very bad news. Uh, Twenty nineteen saw a rise in superbug hotspots directly associated with farms. No circumstantial, maybe or you know statistical likelihood dithering arguments about it. It is a direct one to one connection with farms. Uh, the researchers for the various studies indicating this, uh, they do have uh, some skin in the game. They got some bacon in the pan here because uh, their argument is ultimately that this can be traced back to what they call overconsumption of meat. And, you know, we're very, in this country, we're very Ron Swanson about it. Like, we'll tell you when it's enough bacon. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, all the bacon. <laughs> well, and, 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 and back in the day, I mean, meat was a treat. It was something mm-hmm. you'd have like, you know, as like a special occasion kind of thing. And because of factory farming, we've sort of like stripped it of that kind of special occasion feel and people eat it for every meal. And, you know, whether you believe in the science behind it or not, I think we can all probably agree that eating red meat for every meal is probably not the best thing for our bodies and, and our diets as human beings. Right. It's true. Think of the so-called blue spots. Uh, those are that's a handful of areas in the world wherein people tend to live to and past a hundred years old at at an like a shocking degree in comparison to adjacent regions. Uh, there are a number of factors that are traced to this, and one of them is their diet. Their diet does appear to be uh, less based on on meat in general, red meat especially. So it's so it's a health concern. I don't think that's being preachy. That's a, that's a health concern. But if you if you look at what's happening with the global economy, and you look at how it changes individual consumption habits, then you see in parts of the developing world, uh, people who are doing better financially than perhaps their parents did, or than perhaps they did earlier in life, uh, they are eating meat more often. Like you said, Noel, uh, we're talking about Northeast India, Northeast China. Uh, the Red River Delta in Vietnam, those are hot spots for superbugs on the Asian continent. And then there are places like Mexico and Johannesburg that are also affected. This is hitting, this is hitting everybody because everybody's kind of doing the same thing. Everybody's eating that meat and they're trying to make more of it as fast as they can and as cheaply as possible. And uh, should we just tell them the real, real consequences, Ben? All right, uh, let's get started here. There's a study in science came out not that long ago, and uh, I was looking at global trends in antimicrobial resistance in animals within low and middle income countries. And my God, this is something we've mentioned on this show before, but this number is staggering. It is estimated that around 73% of all antimicrobials that are sold on Earth, that are used on this planet, are not for humans when a human gets sick or something and needs to get healed because we have this magic thing called an, an, an antimicrobial, an antibiotic. Uh, 73% are used on animals for food. 73% worldwide. And we just talked about how that practice right there of using the antibiotics on animals rather than, you know, a human who has gotten sick is the problem. It's not good. 
No, no, it is double plus ungood, as Orwell would say, beyond the potentially serious consequences for public health, this reliance on antibiotics to meet the demand for for meat to to meet the meat demand. Anyway, sorry, the homonyms, whatever. You got to you got to meet out that meat mm. demand. Yeah, the meat cute moment where you see that hamburger. Uh, the the problem is this is also a, a a threat, quite likely to the sustainability of the livestock industry. This could wreck the ship, uh, and that would mean that it is a danger to the livelihood of farmers around the world and people associated with this industry. The scientists in these studies. Um, do leave a, a, a little bit of light at the end of the slaughterhouse tunnel uh, by saying there's a window of opportunity to nip this in the bud to prevent the rise of very real, potentially unstoppable superbugs. Uh, the stakes <laughs> are high. Uh, UK former chief medical officer Sally Davies said that this is one of the greatest threats the modern world faces. And the thing is, even though scientists even though even though people are largely on the same page about this they're not really agreeing on how to approach it or how to fix it because it's a global problem uh these diseases will not recognize rule of law they don't have a passport they don't care about customs so one country's laws alone no matter what they are they don't really fix this you can legislate all you want in the u.s But that's not going to change the fact that China and India are home to more than half the world's pigs and chickens. And therefore, it's up to those governments and those companies to try to try their own solution to the problem. So at this point, at the end of the episode, we got to we got to talk. What are what are the solutions? There's a good case that the secret of the livestock industry is that it may be paving the way for a superbug. That's that's the one sentence takeaway. But the solutions, I don't know, man. They're, they seem pretty piecemeal. You would have to have a lot of coordination, and it's almost a big brother situation to address this. Oh, yeah. And and we didn't even get to it in this episode, and I'm going to propose that we do another follow-up to this, not necessarily secrets of the livestock industry, but about animal activism and, mm. and mm-hmm. the varying groups that are trying to do something of varying sizes. Uh, and some have been around for a long time. Some are just now forming. And they're taking like different steps. One that I really want to focus on, and I'd love to put out a call to anyone who who's listening to this. If you if you're familiar with DXE, it's a group called DXE. I've been reading a lot about them, doing a lot of research on that particular group and the actions that they take. Um, and it is it is interesting to see how uh, the varying levels of extremity or the extremes that people are willing to go. To, to try and prevent this from happening. Because it can be at the individual level, right? Just decide to stop eating meat. But how the heck does that one individual change the system? Unless you get billions of people to decide that. Right. And how do you make it worth worth their time? Also, is it is it ethical as a governing body or a ruler of some sort, an authority, is it ethical to tell people what they can and cannot eat and how much they can consume. Remember how New York went nuts when there was that uh, there, there was that regulation to like reduce the maximum size of, of the some, sodas. 
sodas or something with some sugary drink. People went wild. People who would never even drink that stuff were like, don't tread on me. How dare you? And, um, and imagine that problem on a macro worldwide level. Uh, the, the, there's also, so calling for people to eat less meat, that's one of the main things the studies propose, but they also propose other things. Like what if we put a hard cap on the amount of antibiotics that can be used in some way, right? We make some kind of metric for that. Well, and it is becoming popular in a lot of places if you have the um, amount of wealth to support it, to support farms that don't use a lot of the practices that we've outlined in this episode today, that, you know, do allow cattle to just graze and roam and aren't hooked up, you know, in the ways we've discussed here, same thing with chickens and pigs. And that's becoming a popular thing, but you have to have a certain level of wealth in order to support that lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And then there are still also serious questions about, you know, intentions aside, how much of an impact is that making and how legit are the claims from those producers? Uh, yeah, it's true. I mean, there are, there are uh, cows in Japan and get fed beer and they get massages. Their life is kind of dope until they get killed. But, but you're right. They, there's not, there's not a single thing there. There are a number of financial incentives proposed or carrot and stick kind of things where they say, okay, why don't we just have higher taxes on animal products? Just like in the last episode where we said how much meat cost and we found some really weird calculations. Would that disincentivize people? Maybe. Uh, but then there's something a little more insidious, something, something a little, you know, Dr. Evil, the pinky to the mouth about it. What if we hide the costs in the supply chain even deeper and we tax the antibiotics? Mm. Stinks for the farmers. Well, then um, just you'd have way more cows in much more distress and sick, right? That's what that's all you'd get out of that. There'd be fewer antibiotics used by factory mm. farms. Yeah, uh, you know, that's a good point. We don't know how that would go because that hasn't been put into action. It's all a matter of theory. But these will these strategies work? What do you guys think? I mean, should people institute these? Because make no mistake, like this is this is not right now. This is not a what if situation. This is a when is it going down situation. Yeah, I mean, it's one of, it's one of these things where it's like, you know, people want what they want and what people want is lots of meat, <laughs> unfortunately. And until the demand goes down, it's going to be a hard sell to say you have to change your habits for the greater good. Because uh, in America in particular, people don't really go for that very often. And how is the first question? It's like, well, why am I taking the hit if I don't see any, anybody else doing it? You know mm -hmm. what I mean? So it would have to be a worldwide adoption do we need for people who want this stuff to happen? Do we need to have like a modern Edward Bernays waging a campaign to change the hearts and the minds of the meat eating public? Should also point out, by the way, folks, that um, Mission Control, Matt, Noel, and myself are omnivores. So we're eating meat too. Uh, we're we're aware of this, but we're also aware that there there does appear to be some kind of ticking clock toward. The potential for something disastrous, um, you know, we can't predict when that would occur. We can't predict the level of impact it would make, but it's not looking good. Uh, so we, we you guys, hear you. yeah, Ben, I, yeah, my wife just texted me and said, what do you want from Grindhouse Burger? 
Nice. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't think I want anything right now from there. <laughs> wow. Uh, well, also, you know, arguably carpe diem. I remember when we talked about the collapse of the maritime ecology, her ecosystems, and uh, ocean acidification. And I had a real, what they call in the South, a come-to-Jesus moment with myself. And I was a horrible person about it. And I was like, well, if the next generations of human beings are not going to be able to eat some of these fish, maybe Better I should eat them get now. one. <laughs> yeah, I was like, maybe? I don't know. It's, it's terrible. But that's, I mean, it's kind of a curb your enthusiasm moment, but it's something that we're all going through on a daily basis. We want to know your thoughts. Should there be some authority given the power to mandate certain changes? Uh, I think that's kind of dangerous, personally, because where does power stop? The answer is it usually doesn't. Um, but then also, is this – are people being alarmist about this? Um, if you were to propose solutions, what would those solutions be? We want to hear from you. We try to make it easy to find us. And I agree with you, Matt. I think there's uh, there's more to be said about this in the future. Yeah, we will we'll do that. So, hey, contact us. We are Conspiracy Stuff on Twitter and Facebook. On Instagram, we are Conspiracy Stuff Show. We also have individual Instagrams. I'm going to say mine today. Matt underscore Frederick. Nope. Matt Frederick underscore iHeart. That's it. The underscore's in there somewhere. It's up to sure. you to figure out where. It's like a puzzle box. Good luck. Uh, yeah, good luck. You type it out. You have to type out underscore. <laughs> underscore. Exactly. Um, uh, you can find me on Instagram exclusively where I am at How Now Noel Brown. Ben's all over the internet. Oh, man. Yeah, for now. Uh, you Feel free to reach out to me directly at Ben Bolin HSW on Twitter. Uh, you can also reach me at Ben Bolin on Instagram. Uh, just let me know what's on your mind. Topics for upcoming shows. Uh, memes. Fine. Yeah. yeah. Just, we, we always love to hear from you. You're the most important part of the show. Uh, hey, Dan, if you're still listening to the show or Kesha or anybody else, if you have Clubhouse and you're one of the cool people that's already in there, uh, hit us up. We're interested in exploring it. Oh, you can find me on Clubhouse, too. You're on Clubhouse? Oh, I'm so jealous. <laughs> I, you know, I'm going to say, look, I know we're running long. Paul's going to kill us here, but I'm on the fence with it right now. I don't know whether it is going to be a flash in the pan, whether it's going to be a very popular good thing or whether it's going to be a very bad thing because they're. Uh, you could do uh, a live hangout, right? Mm hmm. So, like, we could ostensibly do a stuff they don't want you to know thing of some sort mm -hmm. on it? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, we could. Well, invite the show, Ben. You elitist. <laughs> uh, yeah, let us let us know what you think about that, too. I'm a little bit uh, – I feel like I'm overthinking it, but there's how, – how do you moderate hate speech? How do you moderate extremism on an, an ephemeral audio app? We, well, we have good times with the, with the people who are being nice, and the other ones we <laughs> ignore. <laughs> there we go. Uh, if you don't care for social media, you can give us a phone call directly. We're one eight three three S T D W Y T K. You have three minutes. Those are your minutes. Tell us what's on your mind. Recommend a topic you think your fellow listeners will enjoy. Let us know if we can use your name and or voice on air. And be warned, folks, or just don't be warned. Be aware that uh, there's a possibility you might get a call back from one of us or the creamed corn kid himself. I was saving that <laughs> this whole time. <laughs> oh. <laughs>
Is that That's, okay? Yeah, cream corn is coming for you. Watch out. Uh, it reminds me of that scene in <laughs> Twin Peaks Firewalk with me where, like, the, the little guy talking about cream corn, and there's a scene in the movie where there is a creepy little kid in a mask uh, next to the cream, involving cream corn. I don't remember, but I think of him as the cream corn kid, and I'll never be able to get that image out of my head. But, uh, yeah, cream corn is good. I, I, I stand by it. Um, if you don't want to do any of that stuff, you want to get in touch with us the old-fashioned way, why not just send us a good old email? We are conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Attention, true crime enthusiasts. Searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief. With a commitment to transparency, Lazarus Naturals oversees every step from farm to doorstep, ensuring purity and quality you can trust. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today and discover how CBD can help you decompress and recharge for your next investigation. That's LazarusNaturals.com. Lazarus Naturals, your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Cultura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts